Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The text to which I'd like to turn our attention this morning is found at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a joy to again return to our study of this letter from the Apostle Paul to a young church in the Greek city of Corinth. And thus far in this study, we've seen that Paul in this letter is making so far a long and layered argument. From chapter 1, verse 10, all the way into chapter 4, Paul is making a sharp and direct case against quarreling, against fighting and bickering going on within the Corinthian church, specifically quarreling and division surrounding the ministry leaders. Most recently, we've seen Paul use several analogies to describe the church in order to show that it is foolishness that they would be divided. For example, in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3, he uses the analogy of a farm, of a field, to describe the ministry. Different workers in the field, different farmers have different roles, but only God himself can produce the growth. Then in verses 10 through 15, he uses the language of a construction project, of a building. Everybody builds onto a foundation, and every worker will have his work tested on the final day to demonstrate its value. And only that which is built with quality materials and built on the foundation of Christ alone will stand through the fire. Then in verses 16 and 17, Paul moves from a general construction picture to a particular construction analogy. That is, he calls the church the temple of God. And like we discussed last time, this temple language is full of Old Testament imagery. And it speaks to the theological foundation that undergirds Paul's exhortations here. If God fills the church like he filled the temple in the Old Testament, and God is united, then it is unfitting that the church would not also be united. And then we move into our text this morning, verses 18 through 23, in which Paul moves to preliminarily conclude his arguments against divisions and factions. Each of these analogies that he's been using, along with all the other threads of arguments made throughout the first three chapters, are all tied together in a wonderful theological bow here at the end of chapter 3. And so let's begin by reading together verses 18 through 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hear the word of our Lord. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age... Let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the giver of life and fountain of all blessings, we ask that you would indeed bless us this morning, that your spirit would be near, that you would illumine these pages of Scripture so that we might rightly perceive the Christ proclaimed therein, and by believing have life ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In our text this morning, we will notice two main points. First, 
a deception to be avoided, and second, a perspective to be maintained. A deception to be avoided and a perspective to be maintained. First, let's look at the deception to be avoided. He begins in verse 18 by saying, Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. Self-deception is the danger that Paul is urging the Corinthians to avoid. Sometimes the danger comes from the outside, and it's easy to spot. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about the Judaizers that had come in, and they had bewitched the church, the people in Galatia. The threat came from the outside. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will warn the church in Corinth about the false apostles that came in and were proclaiming another Jesus and a different gospel. They came from the outside. But here in 1 Corinthians 3, indeed throughout the beginning of this whole book, Paul is warning of a different kind of threat, a threat from within, a threat of self-deception, a threat of arrogance and conceit, a threat of pride. Paul again exhorts them, If anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may be wise. And the language here is the same that he did, that he used in chapter 1. The problem is that the Corinthians considered themselves to be wise. They thought too highly of themselves. And the solution was not that they needed to learn something new, not that they needed to gain more worldly wisdom. The solution was that they needed to become fools. More on that in a minute. But in verse 19, we get the theological rationale for what Paul is urging. It says, For the wisdom of the world is folly to God, or with God. The wisdom of the world is folly. And this statement is the same in content from chapter 1, 18 through 25, but it's here stated in reverse, thus highlighting God's evaluation of what worldly wisdom really is. And it's God's evaluation of that wisdom that ultimately matters, isn't it? And then Paul quotes for us two different Old Testament passages, one from Job and one from the Psalms. It says, For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. We could say He catches the clever in their cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile, useless, in vain, frustrating. He's taking language, Paul is, related to hunting. And he's applying it to how God deals with the haughty. You see, the hunter may catch a very cunning prey using its own craftiness as the spring of the trap. And that's what God is doing here. He's trapping the worldly wise by their own worldly wisdom. They think that they are so clever, so crafty, but their own cleverness becomes the occasion for their unmasking, for their undoing. Going back to the imagery of verse 17, they think they're actually building the temple according to their worldly wisdom. But what they're doing is actually destroying God's temple. And because they're destroying God's temple, God will destroy them. Verse 17. This is sobering stuff. Paul is saying, in effect, to the Corinthians, don't think that you can adopt the philosophies and the values and the tactics of the world as if such choices don't have a profoundly detrimental impact upon the church. Don't think you can get away with it. Don't kid yourself. You're leaving behind the gospel and doing damage to God's church. See, the true path of wisdom is the path of the cross, which is a path of death. 
It's the path of true glory. It's to side with God and not to the world. One writer put it this way, the world pants after strong leaders. But leaders in the church must first of all be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world parades around its heroes and its gurus and its strong men, but we must remember that God loves to choose the weak and the lowly, the despised, the nobodies, so that no man may boast before Him. The world tries to impress with its rhetoric and its sophistication, cherishing the form and the delivery more than the message and the content. But the apostles of Jesus Christ prized truth above style and quietly but firmly refused to endorse any form of preaching that may prove so attractive, so diversionary, that the centrality of the gospel truth is jeopardized. And we would be wise to remember that this temptation is certainly active today. It didn't go away with the Corinthians, and it doesn't go away when we come to Christ. The self-deception of pride and the lure of worldly wisdom is alive and well, both for churches and for individuals. As a church, you can see the lure of worldly wisdom wherever you see an emphasis on the external to the neglect of the internal. For example, when you have an emphasis on finances and not on faithfulness. When a church looks at its own budgets and its receipts and it assumes that because the finances are okay, we must be doing everything right. God is blessing us and we are wise. They have succumbed to a worldly evaluation of success. Finances instead of faithfulness. But it may not be just finances. A church may be tempted by worldly wisdom to evaluate its health by programs rather than purity. And by that I mean a church can assume that just because it has a lot of programs and is busy, it must therefore be holy, which is totally upside down. But it's a real temptation. It's a peculiar shame, too, that a religion founded solely upon grace and not works can get so mixed up that it mixes its works, its own busyness, as a measure of its standing in grace. We can't allow ourselves to be so self-deceived to believe that just because we have a lot going on, we must be growing. We must be getting holy. Programmatical busyness does not equal purity. Or another one. A church can succumb to worldly wisdom when it emphasizes quantity over quality. Quantity over quality. Sometimes churches can look at the number of baptisms, the number of visitors, the number of members, and assume God must be blessing it, so we must be doing it all right. But to go back to the language of verses 10 to 15, we must be careful how we build, not with hay and straw, but with precious stones of faithfulness to God and His Word. Many churches today are building ministries that will not stand the test of fire on the last day. Their busyness, their works, their volume, their huge activity will be scorched and proven fruitless in the end if they labor with shoddy materials or with faulty methods or with selfish ends in mind. We mustn't succumb to the temptations of worldly wisdom to prize quantity over quality. But this temptation towards self-deception and worldly wisdom is not just for the church. It's also for each of us as individuals. Every time I'm tempted towards outward religiosity without inward reverence of heart, 
I've succumbed to worldly wisdom. When I focus on my outward performance without having a heart that reveres and loves God, I have missed the boat. Such hypocrisy is unequivocally condemned by Jesus and in some of his harshest words, polishing the outside of the cup while the inside is nasty. Whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside full of death. That's how Jesus spoke of hypocrites. But that's the temptation of arrogance. That's the self-deception of pride. The rules are good and they apply to everyone else, but not to me. My situation is different, you see. My circumstances are unique. I don't have to abide by the same rules. I'm exempt because I'm so special. You see how that's what the world likes to do. The worldly wise man loves to condemn people out there for greed, but has no problem seeking his own selfish gain. The world loves to mock those in authority, but then make sure you better not mock me. The world demands immediate justice when they're sinned against, but they want unlimited mercy when they are the transgressors. In short, pride thinks that everyone else should be judged by an unbending law, but I must be granted mercy. You see the double standard. They, them out there, they are all guilty, but I have earned the right to get off the hook. They are the sinners, I am the innocent one. That's the nature of self-deception. And it destroys relationships. It distorts our own perception of reality. And if unchecked, it will lead you straight to hell. The Bible says that pride leads to hell. God will catch the wise in his craftiness, the text says. There's no doubt. There's no equivocation in that statement. God is a hunter who does not miss his prey. It's a fact. And unlike the double standard of prideful self-deception, Scripture teaches that no one is innocent. Every one of us has broken the law of God. Every one of us has been prideful. Every one of us has been a hypocrite with a polished outside and death on the inside. We've held others to standards we never want to meet ourselves. And we demand respect from others that we would never grant them. We demand justice from others and yet we want leniency for us. In short, each of us is born a self-deceived hypocrite. But the good news of God, the good news of Scripture is that Christ died to save those who were good. Those who had it all together. Those who were pure in motive and heart. No, Christ died to save the ungodly. Christ came and lived a perfectly humble life so that he could redeem a once proud bride. He came to die on the cross for his church, taking the consequences of her prideful hypocrisy and burying them in the grave. And he walked out of that grave on the third day with redemption in his hand. The consequences of her sin, of his bride's sin, can never be charged against her. She has been washed. She has been purged of her sin. The true saints of God have been made sons and daughters of God Almighty. That's the power of the gospel. We go from being God's prey caught in a trap of our own cleverness and instead receive adoption. By a loving father, a faithful guardian who provides for us all things in Christ. And if that's you, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then be encouraged this morning that you have been saved from your pride. 
You have been awakened from your arrogant self-deception. God has spoken to you in Christ and granted you everything that you need. Don't go back again to the worldly system. Don't go back to thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought to. Don't think that the world revolves around you and your preferences and your comforts and your opinions. You see, Christ gave up His comfort. He gave up even His life so that you might do the same. You too are called to give up your preferences and your comforts and maybe even your life that Christ may save others through your labors. And if you haven't yet come to Christ, then hear the call of God today. You must become a fool if you would be wise. Become a fool according to the world that you may gain the wisdom of Christ. Humble yourselves. Hear of the sin that you have committed and hear of the holiness of God. And hear of the sacrifice of Christ in the place of sinful people. Believe in that Christ and look to Him in faith and turn from your sins this day. You can be saved if you look to Him as your Savior in faith. Because it's only by becoming a fool that you can truly taste of wisdom. It's only by becoming nothing that you could be made an heir of all things. And that leads to our second point. A perspective to be maintained. A perspective to be maintained. Look at verse 21. So let us, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Why, Paul? Why should we boast in no men? Because all things are yours. The ethical exhortation has a theological foundation. No boasting, because everything is yours. Paul is using wonderful irony here. He's transforming the slogans that were used by the opponents. Verse 4 says that the Corinthians would literally say, we could translate it this way, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas or Peter. And then in verse 9, Paul uses their language and switches it and says, no, you are of God. But here in this verse, he uses another spin on the phrase and says, all things are of you. All things are yours. They are all of you. Well, what do you mean, Paul? You can't possibly mean all things. Get real, Paul. But he is being real. He even begins to list the things that are ours. And he, he starts with a list of men who are at the center of all the debating and the divisions. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And the point is this. You may not say, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, not only because that's boasting in a mere man, but because that's precisely the opposite of reality in Christ. You see, in Christ, Paul will later say, in Ephesians, that God has already begun what will eventually be brought to full consummation, namely that all things in heaven and on earth are being brought under one head under Christ, and by union with Him. We're made heirs of those things. And so to tie yourself to a particular ministry leader to the exclusion of others is to foolishly narrow what we have been given in Christ. All things are yours in Christ. Why would you claim to belong to a single person? It doesn't make sense. But then Paul's list of everything belonging to a believer doesn't stop with a few preachers. He expands the list with shocking speed. He says, all things are yours, Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life or death, or present, or the future. This promise expands to the world. The word is cosmos. Each of these 
fundamental dynamics of world, life, death, present, future have been called the ultimate tyrannies of human existence. That means each of these categories are thought-dominating and perspective-changing realms of our lives. Let's look at them. First, the world. Paul says the world is ours. This is my father's world, we will sing later. And as an adopted son, I am heir to all things. And in Christ, specifically in his death and resurrection, God has declared that all of creation is under the jurisdiction of Christ as Lord. The cross has become the victory banner, proclaiming Christ's preeminence over the cosmos, including the most rebellious segments of it. Christ is the conquering king, and his moment of conquest was the moment of the cross. The world is his, and for those united to him, we have the world also. But Paul also says that life and death are ours. That means that every aspect of our existence is ours, and no longer forfeited under the power of sin and death. The life we have is found because we have first been united to the fountain of life. It's one of the ways Jesus describes himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. Outside of him, we have no life. We have no vitality in and of ourselves. Our fate was sealed, and it was sealed with a sentence of death because of sin. But in Christ, we've been granted life. Not merely spiritual life. The undoing of the spiritual curse. From Genesis 3. But also eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. But it's not merely our life that's ours, but our death as well. We will die if the Lord tarries, but life cannot be taken from us. Death is transformed from a terrible, fear-driving specter into a ferryman who carries us into life, eternal life. The worst of all fates becomes the moment of greatest joy for us. The scariest of all moments, that is our death leads us into the sweetest experience of bliss. And this is true not merely of our place of existence, that is the world, and of our states of existence, that is life and death, but Paul says it's that in Christ we have been given even our times of existence, present and future. The present we live in light of a future that's so certain that it's spoken of in the present tense. Paul says in Ephesians, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our future is so sure, he speaks of it as if it's now. We are united to Christ in a presence so secure that Paul speaks of us as already tasting of the eternal benefits. We live the life of the future in the present age, and therefore the present has become our possession. For those of us that are in Christ, what were formerly tyrannies, death, eternity, even the world, have now become our new birthright. This is the glorious freedom of the children of God. They are free, lords over all things, not bound by the whims of chance or the pressures of life and death. The future is no cause of panic, for it is already ours. It is sure and certain. Thus, in light of such expansive realities, how could the Corinthians say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, You do not belong to them, Paul would say. They belong to you. They are your servants because you and they are both Christ's. You Corinthians may be boasting because you think you've sided yourself with the best part. You've latched on to a particular ministry leader that you think is the best. 
and by your decision you think you are proclaiming to the world that you are wise. But your wisdom has done nothing but demonstrate your foolishness. By clamping onto a man and boasting in him, you cut yourself off from a larger heritage, the larger heritage found in Christ. These men belong to the church in the exact same way that the farmers above belong to the field, and the construction workers, the builders, belong to the project. To focus on one part of the project, as if that's everything, is to cut oneself off from the rest of the project as a whole. To fashion or to fasten oneself with undue and exclusive affection and loyalty to one leader is to depreciate how much there is to receive from all the others. In other words, divisive factionalists in Corinth were overlooking the wealth of the heritage that we as Christians properly enjoy. This Corinthian temptation, this temptation towards worldly, self-deceiving arrogance and divisions is an easy one to repeat. It's easy to repeat in any one of these areas. Our leadership, our world, our life, our death, our present, our future. In in the area of our ministry leaders, we can be tempted to deify some while we demonize the others. We lionize some and lament the work and ministry of others. I've preached on that before from chapter 1. I won't do it again here. But in the other areas, this temptation is real too. Maybe somebody does something that I don't quite agree with, that I don't really love. It's contrary to my plans and my design and my pattern, and my world gets threatened. So I get angry, rather than trusting that my world belongs to God. Maybe someone makes a decision that impacts my financial security, and I get fidgety and start coveting someone else's economic situation. Rather than trusting my life is actually in Christ, I fear that my future has been threatened. Or maybe I get sick or someone I love gets a bad diagnosis. And rather than trusting that my death is in the hands of Christ, I get all spun up and I can't stop thinking about it. In my pride, I think that I can think my way out of this problem. I can think my way out of this death. But brothers and sisters, we ought to be encouraged by Paul's statement of the truth. All things are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. And it's quite a doxological or a praise-evoking way to tie together these arguments he's been making. All are yours and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. What have I left to fear? What have I have left to earn? What do I have left to cling to? Nothing. Christ is my all in all and in Christ all has been made mine. No guilt in life and no fear in death. That's the motto of the great hymn and it's a fine motto for a Pauline view of the Christian life. Let us not boast in men but boast in the gracious God who's granted us all things in Christ. And as you hear this message perhaps you're not quite convinced by what I'm saying. I hope that you would stop and reflect upon the biblical gravity of this message. Make clear in your mind the stakes of this situation. If you have not come to Christ, then know that each of these areas, the world, life, death, present, future, each of those areas ought to terrify you. Because outside of Christ, rather than having all things, you have nothing. You may think that the world is your apple, but God can take it away in a moment. Outside of Christ, you may think you have life, but apart from Jesus, 
Every moment of your life that you reject Him is accruing for yourself more condemnation for the final day. Outside of Christ, you may deceive yourself that death will never come. And if it does come, it won't be as bad as the Bible teaches. But know that your death is coming, and it's sooner than you think. And the destination is more terrible than you suppose. And the punishment will last longer than you can ever imagine. Outside of Christ, you may think you have your present under control, but know that your handle on things is a mere illusion. You're no more in control of your life than you are in control of the sun rising or of the earth spinning. And outside of Christ, you may think you have a handle on your future, but be warned that your future plans are at best conjecture, totally contingent upon the sovereign will of God. Biblically, the only thing I can assure you about your future is that you will face God and you will face judgment. Are you prepared to face that judge? Are you ready to stand before the all-penetrating gaze of our Heavenly Father? All of your deeds will be brought to light and each deed will be stacked up against you. You see, perfection is the standard. Holiness is the bar and the benchmark will be lowered for no one. Every soul will be tested. Against that bar. Come to Christ today and have your future secured and your life guaranteed. Then you can face the judgment in the confidence of Christ's perfection. You will be able to stand before God with boldness, knowing that although your sins have made you like scarlet, Christ has made you as white as snow. Do not delay. Trust in this Christ, and you too can be granted all things, for you can be made Christ, just as Christ is God's. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that is found because of the faithfulness of Christ in our place. We pray that we would believe, that we would trust the good news we have heard, and it would drive us not to be competitive and divisive, but to seek unity, knowing that all things have been ours. Why do we fight and quarrel when all things have been given to us? Why do we covet and demand when you have provided all things we need for life and godliness? Bless us this day, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by singing hymn number 101, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Hymn 101.